As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, the show which aims to help grow your confidence in thinking through and sharing your faith. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before I introduce this week's guest, just a quick reminder to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. We are very pleased to be hosting Tim Keller for our next Unbelievable Live event on Tuesday, the 13th of December. Dubbed New York's Pastor to Skeptics, Tim Keller is a renowned speaker, author, and former pastor of Redeemed Presbyterian Church, New York. Having written and spoken frequently on the problem of pain, Tim has faced his own journey with suffering since being diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in 2020. Tim will share some of the lessons that he's learned over the past two years, as well as giving his thoughts on the direction of US church and culture. Join Tim Keller, Justin Briley, and me in a live show on Tuesday the 13th of December, where you'll also be able to ask your questions. It's free to attend online from anywhere in the world. Register at unbelievable.live. But now for today's show. Today is the second episode of our two-part interview with Pastor John Tyson. Originally from Adelaide, Australia, John moved to the United States 20 years ago and now lives in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan with his wife and two children. He is the author of numerous books, including Sacred Roots, A Creative Minority, The Burden is Light, Beautiful Resistance, and The Intentional Father. I caught up with John during the summer, and this is part two of our conversation. A youth group was pretty key in your journey to faith. So how do we create spaces like that where young people can genuinely encounter God and can kind of bring their honest doubts um, I suppose there's the places within the church, within the secular space, but also within the home. I have spent 28 years trying to reverse engineer the wonder of what happened to me in my youth group. <laughs> my youth group was such an extraordinary experience. Part of it is is that there was a little like an, a legitimate move of God, like the fruit that came out of that youth group was was really remarkable. It was a very sovereign thing. Um, you, I had a youth pastor. His name was Russell Evans from Planet Shakers, and a guy named Paul Gearley. and they just called out my destiny. It's very hard to articulate. They just saw something in me I didn't see in myself. They believed in me. They created an atmosphere of faith, expectation, empowerment joy, leadership, a sense of belonging. And I just 
had never encountered anything like it. They created an atmosphere of belonging, faith, expectation, and empowerment. And um, gosh, if every leader could create a place of belonging, faith, expectation, and empowerment, we'd be a lot closer there. A lot of times, you know, I think youth pastors, um, they can, you know, they can be so fun, they never get to the serious issues, or they can be so worried about how bad the world is, they create a spirit of fear. Mm. I think, you know, purpose, identity, belonging, focusing on the love of God, looking questions in the face, being honest about it, that's the stuff to me that we should be leaning into. We've, we've got a remarkable uh, youth team at our church in New York, and um, it's probably the best ministry in our entire church. Our church is, is by the grace of God, it's filled with wonderful people, but something special is happening to the other and, and he's doing that, empowering them. There's, there's tons of laughter, tons of tears, tons of hard questions, honest talk. Everybody's welcome. So... Maybe, maybe you should ask him. Yeah, yes. I what I did was hire him. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> I suppose that's one thing like within the church context, but what about the hordes and hordes of young people who are outside of our church walls who are just not interested? How, how do we reach those? Well, we probably need 100 digital Billy Grahams. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've got to have missionaries where, where kids are. And, and everybody knows this. It is, it is digital first and it's cell phone first, mobile phone first. So we need a whole new group of, you know, TikTok evangelists. And I, I know that stuff's happening. Um, we just need more of it. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in go to where the people are. And so um, earlier I was probably like a little suspicious, like it, is this doing anything? Until a girl who met Jesus on TikTok that we baptised at our church. And I was like, you know what? Okay. Do you know any of the sort of objections and questions that have come specifically from young people? And do you think they look different? for Generation Z compared to like some of the older generations? Absolutely. It's it's primarily, well, they're asking questions about justice and sexuality as their starting point. And I don't think other generations have asked those questions in the same way. And so if you don't have a compelling view of what the Bible teaches on sexuality as being good, good news for our sexuality, if you don't have a vision of justice that is holistic and helps them make sense of the pain of the world and what to do about it, I don't think you're going to have a shot. So um, I think they're very, very different. And, you know, the typical teenager is touching their phone thousands of times a day. They're being formed one interaction at a time by social media. And uh, so they're very astute. Uh, yeah, I, I, you've got to... Give them answers at the beginning that you normally would think, well, let's talk about other things for six months. You've got to start up front with the hard stuff. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that we need those TikTok evangelists and mm. you know evangelists across social media. But we also need to kind of, I suppose, protect young people from certain aspects of social media and you know unhelpful filters and, and of, all of, of course, that. You of know, course, how assumed. do we help young people navigate social media and, and everything that comes with that? It's a very complicated situation. You've got to have so social media is, an, uh, is a wonderful tool, it's a terrible master, and so you've got to utilize it and not let it utilize you. So um, you got to have boundaries, obviously, screen time, boundaries, filters, all those sorts of things. Um, you've got to have a theology of media. You have a philosophy, a ministry philosophy of media. You got to spend time working about it and not be purely pragmatic. And I think, you know, there's obviously, I think Andy Crouch, again, wrote a TechWise family, a wonderful book, trying to help parents think through this. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few other good books out there too. 
I guess I, I don't know whether it's the same in the States, but what I found talking to a lot of um, kind of parents of young people is young people go to church for maybe an hour, two hours or whatever on a Sunday, perhaps a Friday night or something like that. But the rest of kind of discipleship is obviously done at home and mm-hmm. parents are terrified because they mm-hmm. just don't think they have the resources. They don't think they have the answers to the big questions that young people have. And this is a huge question, but how do we do faith at home? Well, number one, parents have to accept responsibility for this. Not like, you know what, I sent my kid to the youth group, I think they'll be fine. Or, um, yeah, they're going to church, so they're going to be okay. You've got to view yourself like, like the Bible teaches. Yeah, I, I think about the intensity of Deuteronomy 6, when you sit, when you stand, as you're walking along, or write these, everywhere you look, it, it remind them they live in a God-haunted world, god present. So parent number one, parent has to accept responsibility of it. And then I would say, like, it can be simpler than you think. Your kids don't expect you to be a pastor. They expect you to be loving and available. And, it's it's again, it's about sowing every day just small seeds into the souls of your kids, being present to pay attention to what they're dealing with, and then creating space to sort of talk, worship, worship, sorry, talk and worship, those sorts of things. You have written a book called The Intentional Father, and you uh-huh. do a podcast with Jeff Beth. Beth Kay, where you kind of talk about family issues and, mm-hmm. and things like that. What, you, what does it mean to be an intentional father? And I guess bigger than that, a kind of intentional parent. Um, so I want to start by saying it's not called the perfect father because my children will tell you my dad is not a perfect father. I've done a lot of repenting. I had to ask for forgiveness many times. Got many things wrong as a dad. But I, but I think my kids would say my dad has been intentional. And that, so basically two kinds of parents sort of got like reactionary parents and intentional parents. A reactionary parent wait and waits to see what's going to happen and tries to respond. An intentional parent says like, here's kind of a vision of who I want my kids to be, what I want them to know, what I want them to be able to do, what experiences I want them to have. And uh, I'm going to work backwards based on whatever they age they are and come up with something to help make that happen. And I often find that parents are very, very gifted, um, you know, university training or job school training. They just never apply any of that to their kids. So, you know, a dad who's like an amazing strategist solving problems comes home and is like, I don't know what to do with the kids. It's like, hey, save 4% of your emotional energy and just brainstorm, apply some of those things uh, towards your family. You'd be amazed at, at what you're capable of. So, yeah, I'm just asking parents to accept responsibility because, given, and, uh, again, responsibility is the ability to choose your response. You can do whatever you want at your home. There's no, you can't blame the school, the teacher, the social worker, whatever. And then just try and create an atmosphere of love and faith and utilize the dinner table. Have Even if it's one meal a week, hey, we're just going to have a conversation and get good at asking questions. Mm. Read books uh, or, you know, watch a film together and have like a chat about it or whatever. Your kids want this from you. They probably won't tell you they want this from you the older they get, but they still ache for it, even if they don't. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. And you're not afraid to comment on cultural issues. You know, you did a series called The Controversial Jesus. You, you wrote a letter um, based on the sort of Roe versus Wade thing, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, all, all of those sorts of things. How do we get that balance right between being sort of biblically faithful, but also pastorally compassionate with these huge questions? I'm aware that's a massive question. And, and no, so, no, I think, no, I think you've answered it. We have to, we have to be culturally aware biblically faithful, and compassionately engaged. 
that's it. And then you just like sit down on that Roe versus Wade letter. I just basically sat down and asked a few questions. Like, what do I think the Bible teaches about this? What has the church historically said about, I don't get to make it up. Like I'm inheriting and guarding a deposit, as the Bible says. Okay. What does our culture say about this? What are the views on culture? And then how am I compassionate and understanding? And then, you know, I had COVID when I wrote that letter. I was really sick. So, I was, But I was in bed, like, laying down, kind of like, what does the Bible say? So you just pick a few categories, and then you think deeply about them, and you jot down some notes on them, and then you talk to people firsthand. Mm. I mean, I remember very – I mean, I, I, I'm tr- trying to share this, like, in a discreet way, but um, remember very, very clearly as a new believer, one of my friends getting pregnant and asking me, hey – this is when I was in the butcher shop. John, you're a Christian. What does the Bible say about um, having an abortion? I'm going to have an abortion. It's some guy I met at a club. And I just remember thinking, I remember walking this uh, particular friend. She, she has an abortion, walking all the way through it, all the emotional experience. And as a pastor, obviously, uh, you know, we've had many, many women who've had abortions. So I've got personal experience too. I'm knowing the stories behind the issue. I'm trying to humanize it. Remember the pain of the conflict. So you try and bring all of those things to bear. You have nuance. You you know, it's a theological, cultural, personal, sociological. You just ask these things and then you try and speak to them graciously. That, I think that's how you do it. But no, you're like, well, that's too simple. It's like, yeah, but I think the discipline is in doing it. It's not being able to do it. Anybody can do that if they just t- take the time to reflect. So, yeah, maybe it's – and I think – I think many pastors, certainly the ones listening to this, will have done that well. Otherwise, that's why they're listening to someone like you because there's nuance and thoughtfulness around it. So, yeah, I think we just need to practice that so it becomes our instinct and it's not such like labour every time we try and do it. You know? And how do you think we show, I guess, like a, a world that is clearly desperate for hope, particularly post-COVID, all the stats around mental health, particularly yeah. around young people, is just devastating. How do you think we show them that there is a better story, that this isn't all that there is? Well, I mean, I got a, I got a lot of compassion um, for young folks coming out of COVID because the percentage of their life experience has been taken up with this. And, you know, most of us are marked forever by our teenage years. They carry such formative weight. Some people's whole lives are based on pain that happened to them when they were 14 in high school. You know, so I have a tremendous amount of compassion and empathy for what young folks have been through, social isolation, being online, trying to learn, all the political madness, the controversies, the division. Um, So... How do we give them hope? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not even quite sure we're at the hope stage. I think we're just where they love them where they're at stage, which is to say, hey, it's, you know, the reason the reason it's overwhelming is because it's overwhelming. The reason you're struggling with mental health is because you're in a once-in-a-generation pandemic that um, absolutely has overwhelmed the entire population. You know, so it's like you just want to let people know that what you're going through is normal. There's not something wrong with you. And... Um, and then you begin to give, yeah, little bits of encouragement, but, but I'm with you. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. I'm here to listen. So just like a lot of pastoral care. I think we will love them into hope. You work a lot with, I guess, again, being in New York City, people, not necessarily young people, but people who are sort of on a journey of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. How do you think we support people who are deconstructing? It depends what you mean by deconstruction. So... I, I read Derrida on this, you know, who's probably responsible for most of it or a lot of it. 
And he said something so fascinating. Uh, and it's, it's with a lot of technical language, so I'll try and just summarise it. So please don't email in and <laughs> say that, you know, sort of you misquote. This is a summary of very technical language. In essence, he said, if you've had an authentic encounter with grace, deconstruction won't touch it. But anytime grace is embedded in human systems, dysfunction, brokenness, and power dynamics come into it. And we can deconstruct the human elements of our faith without it ever touching the sincere work of grace in our heart. The question is, that he asks, um, is, uh, sorry, the question I ask in response to what he has put forth uh, is the question Paul asked to the Corinthians. He says, test yourself, see if you're in the faith, see whether or not Christ is in you. And I think there's a lot of folks um, who Christ is in them and they're having a Matthew 23, this is not what God had in mind moment, where Jesus calls the Pharisees, you sons of hell, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. He's quite aggressive about the system they've built in God's name. But then there's other people who have just experienced the phenomenological aspects of like they're in a group and they feel loved. And they love the love. They love the acceptance. They're in a room and there's a beautiful feeling of emotional peace by having a sense of oneness around the idea of God, but Christ is not in them. And what when those things go away, either the sense of community or the sense of belonging or something changes, they're walking away only from the secondary aspects or effects of religion, not from Christ himself. And so as a pastor, it's, and, and a part of it is like people are actually just maturing in their faith. That's like saying to a teenager, like, how do you parent a teenager? It's like a, parent, a teenager has to differentiate and challenge everything. It's how you grow. It's a stage. And so it's very, very often that we challenge like uh, childish, not childlike uh, beliefs, and we sort of work through it. So you've got to pastor people through it. So in the book of Jude, uh, when he gives a multifaceted response, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. He says, others snatch from the fire. He says, hating even what's been corrupted. And so you've really got to pastorally discern where somebody's at and um, treat them accordingly. It's, 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 I think it's slow pastoral work, not dismissive internet work. If you could go back to, I guess, kind of teenage John Tyson, probably post-Vic, Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would say to him over the kind of years of everything that you've learned? I would just say, God is going to be kinder to you than you can comprehend. Just be grateful for the whole thing. You know, I mean, gosh, I'm a, a high school dropout, an apprentice butcher. And if you told me that we'd be where we are now and I'd be doing what I'd be doing, I just couldn't have in my wildest dreams imagined that I'd get to experience this mess of God's mercy. I've had a hard life too. I mean, I've been through some very painful things. But really, it's all just been like grace upon grace. So I just say, take heart, young man. You're going to be okay. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and I was speaking there with Pastor John Tyson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles, and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for a free ebook. And don't forget about our next unbelievable live event with Tim Keller on the 13th of December. Dubbed New York's Pastor to Skeptics, Tim Keller is a renowned speaker, author, and former pastor of Redeemed Presbyterian Church, New York. 
Having written and spoken frequently on the problem of pain, Tim has faced his own journey with suffering since being diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in 2020. Tim will share some of the lessons that he's learned over the past two years, as well as giving his thoughts on the direction of US church and culture. Join Tim Keller, Justin Briley and me in a live show on Tuesday the 13th of December, where you'll also be able to ask your questions. It's free to attend online from anywhere in the world. Register at unbelievable.live. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.